Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hi, if you have family that doesn't live nearby, meaning not more than two hours away. Okay, I do too. It's actually one of the harder things for Dory and myself is that my mom lives in Florida, her parents live in Texas, her sister lives in Boston, and it can be lonely at times. What's exciting always, especially for those people who raise their hands, you might commiserate with me, is that when you're going to see family, whether it's your kids or your parents or siblings, you get very excited when you're going to see them, right? It's always a good thing. Some guy just said, no way. But most people get very excited when they're going to see their family. And I do too. And then what ends up happening when you see your family? Within about 10 minutes, you are quickly reminded of some of the idiosyncrasies that drive you nuts about that family member. You love them, we're not questioning the love, but they have, behavior, they have behaviors that kind of gnaw at us at times. That's what family does. Anyone else here in that boat? Okay, good to see some nodding there and some, some hat tips. And that happens to all of us. It happens to me with my parents, it happens to me with my in-laws, it happens to me with my siblings. I love them all very much. I wouldn't change anything about the family I was born into. We have no choice in that matter. I wouldn't change one thing about any of them, but they all have shtick. I, of course, don't have any shtick that they think about, but, but they have shtick and it kind of gets under us at times. So why do I bring this to your attention? I bring this to your attention because in the parsha today, Joseph is reunified with his brothers. And remember what caused them to be apart in the first place was jealousy, upset, bravado, anger, because Joseph was marching around and strutting around in his new kutonet pasim, his new striped outfit that his father made special for him. And the brothers were so annoyed that he was seen as so particular and special and had no understanding for who they were that they decided to cast him into a well and to leave him there for dead to tell his dad that he was killed by a wild animal. And now, what does he do? He pulls this elaborate prank to kind of get back at them and exact a little punishment, capturing Benjamin, this other favored child, and holding him almost ransom or hostage, and watching the fright and worry on the brother's face, and then finally revealing to them, I'm your brother Joseph, his dad alive. And the text tells us, Lo yachlula that the brothers couldn't even answer him because they were so awestruck at the reality that was in front of them. They were silent. So here's my question. If we were to unpack the drama and psychology and personality behind the text, would we see a behavior that says to us, the brothers saw their brother and hugged him and kissed him and were so happy and lived happily ever after? Or would they hug him and kiss him and say, thank God he's alive, and then, oh my God, why did he put us through this? This is so typical, Joseph, to do this. 
And it's so typical Joseph to say, come on down, brothers, I'll introduce you to the Pharaoh. He and I are like this, and he'll lay out the path for you. We don't see the brothers' reactions in a way that describes one permanent feeling. In fact, it's very possible if we were to make what's called a bibliodrama, something that unpacked the behavior of what was the character of the Bible, you would see a unique approach to the brothers' response to Joseph's being alive. I would argue that they were happy he was alive, they were, they were relieved he was alive, they were incredibly impressed at the miracle that brought their lives together again, but it's possible that they were still frustrated at some of the idiosyncrasies and behaviors that were part of what led to this division between them. It wasn't something that time just instantly healed, that personalities changed 180 degrees. It was something where we see an important word in our world today, and that world is nuance. That someone wasn't painted in one particular color, of black or white, because if they were, the brothers would have said, we don't care that you're alive, we left you for dead and we still wanted you dead, and they wouldn't have embraced again. Clearly, there is a level of technicolor, no pun intended, in the relationship that they celebrated. I share this story with you from the Bible as a platform in which to unpack a way in the last two weeks that people have categorized a relationship between the United States and the state of Israel and its leadership. I'm talking directly about the decision by the United States to stay silent and abstain at the United Nations during an important vote about settlements and the view of the state of Israel. And I'm talking specifically about the history and legacy of what will be President Barack Obama vis-a-vis -vis the state of Israel and what will be with Donald J. Trump. So a few things to say, and hopefully, this will all come together to give us a sense of nuance. There are those that said, in no unambiguous terms, that Barack Obama deciding to abstain at this vote solidifies who he is as a person and an anti-Semite. His vitriol and hatred for Israel has been seen since day one, and shame on him. Thank God he finally came out with his true colors. To that I say, that's ludicrous. I find it to be absolutely ludicrous. Now, I will say unequivocally, not put you in any suspense, I cannot understand for a minute why he chose to abstain at this vote. I think it was silly, ill-advised, and it makes no rational sense to me, and it's something that infuriates me and upsets me, and I find silly. If I were a presidential aide, I never in a million years would have advised him to abstain on this vote. But to say that all of his presidential legacy and all of his decisions come down to this one decision is silly. Because, in my estimation, very clearly, this president has done some fantastic things for the state of Israel and some things that I think have been very bad for the state of Israel. So in the fantastic category, until this time, it was Barack Obama and his leadership that had vetoed every single vote at the United Nations until now. More than any other president since the state of Israel 
had been founded as a state in 1948. Every other president abstained or allowed votes to go through on multiple occasions. He was the only one who had none going through. When it came to the vicious Goldstone Report, when it came to you know, issues of the Gaza War, he used his voice and it helped us. When it came for funding for Iron Dome, he and the Congress were there shoulder to shoulder. When it came to the Memorandum of Understanding, current and past, he was there. When it came to visiting Israel and making a peace process a priority, he indeed was there. On those things, I think our president was strong in his dedication towards the state of Israel. Things that I think were bad for the state of Israel. One, perception is reality. And when you put on a perception that there is animus between you and the elected, democratically elected head of the state of Israel and Benjamin Netanyahu, and you let that animus bubble out to the world, that's not good. And it's the job of both Benjamin Netanyahu, but in this case, speaking as an American, the President of the United States, to be above that animus, to be stronger and bigger, and to not let those little things stand in the way and stand on principle and have what we would call some kind of food fight match between the two of them, always one trying to escalate it to the next. Perception is reality, and that perception of that divide can't happen. It's not healthy for either of our countries and not healthy for the future state of Israel. I just told you what I thought about the sanction vote. Pretty clear, unambiguous. I thought it was silly and inane. I can't make any sense of it whatsoever. And lastly, I think the vote on the Iran deal and pushing it through at the level in which it did, and even more criminal to me, is not enforcing the snapback sanctions and all of the other details where Iran has crossed the line. And we have promised the American people and the Israeli people, if they cross the line, we will not tolerate it. To ignore that red line, again, I think, has been catastrophic for the trust that lives between Israelis and Americans, and I think it's been bad for the relationship between the two countries, and I think that that deal is a dangerous deal that puts Israel in harm, but even more importantly, puts America in harm. And I think it's very problematic. So if I were gonna stand here and tell you, I think Barack Obama has been perfect for the state of Israel, I can't say that, I think it's wrong, I think it's not true. But I don't think he's been terrible either. I think, similar, to anyone in which I'm in relationship with, significant relationship, and while this relationship is quite distant, his relationship with us as Americans and with the state of Israel and other countries are important. There have been really good parts and some not so good parts. And I celebrate the good parts and I'm frustrated by the not so good parts. That's the way it is with my siblings. That's the way it is with my mother and my in-laws. That's the way it is with my wife. That's the way it is with people who are friends. They have some parts of them that are frustrating, some parts of them I don't love, and some parts of them that are fantastic and that draw me near. But that's the complicated nature of what it is to be in relationship. And for all of those people who stood up high and proud and said, ha, we were redeemed in our choice of Donald J. Trump as president, my answer is simple. Not proven yet. Now, I, um, I don't think I made any, uh, I left anything open to question as to where my support was for the president-elect. I was not a huge fan of Donald J. Trump's. 
not because he was Republican, and not because of who he wanted to put on the Supreme Court, and not because of his views on immigration or abortion. I wasn't a fan of his because of his personality and attitude and approach to governing this great country. Sometimes our voices are heard, and sometimes my voice isn't. That's how democracy works. But nothing would make me happier, believe it or not, than to stand in front of all of you, and I promise to do it, at the end of four years or eight years, and say to you how wrong I was in believing in his direction for our country and his relationship with the state of Israel. But as they say in Yiddish, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. We can't say before the man has served one day in office what will be and what is. And to assume that making decisions unilaterally that aren't complicated is just something we snap our fingers with and happens is all for the good is naive of all of us. I am the first one who wants to see the embassy and the unified, unquestioned, undivided capital of the Jewish state in Jerusalem. I want to see the embassy there. It belongs in Jerusalem, not in Tel Aviv. Could I be any clearer on that? It belongs in Jerusalem. If putting it in Jerusalem unilaterally without some force of diplomacy, discussion, understanding, perhaps even building another embassy in East Jerusalem, even if it's a unilateral peace plan that's offered, if putting that embassy in Jerusalem causes another intifada and more bloodshed, it is something that causes us to pause. To pause. Not necessarily go through or not go through with it, but to pause. And these things need thought. They need deliberation. They need understanding. And it might be easy for all of us to say, okay, well, just build it anyways. This is who we're going up against. But it's not your kid. Or maybe it is in some of your cases that are living in Israel, that could be the victims of intifada, that could be the victims of violence on a bus or in a grocery store or on the front lines in the army. So let us not be cavalier or brave from a safe distance about what that looks like and what that means. It is complicated and it is nuanced. And since I'm on the topic of complicated and nuanced, let's talk about one of the greatest misunderstandings that is in this UN sanctions vote and to me, with the greatest misunderstanding that happened has to do with semantics. And this is where I draw incredible ire at both our current administration and the media outlets for describing something that is absolutely not representative of what it is that we believe in. It reminds me so much of the man in the story that's told who finds a genie and the genie comes out and says, sir, close your eyes and make one wish and I'll make it happen. And the man closes his eyes, he rubs the genie's bottle, and then all of a sudden, he's surrounded by quacks, quacking everywhere, and he looks, and there's ducks every which way. He says, no, I said a million bucks, not ducks. That small little semantic, that small little change is exactly what's happened here when it comes to our understanding of what is the dilemma in this area of Israel. It's complicated nuanced, and all of us put it into categories that are monochromatic of black and white, right and wrong, good and bad, and it doesn't work that simply. And our administration should not paint it in such a picture. To help you with the understanding, I gave you all a little show and tell. You have papers in front of you with six pictures, all marked A, B, C, D, E, and F. So let's start with some of the easiest processes. 
The Palestinian people never had a state of their own. First, it was under Ottoman Empire, and then under British Mandate, and then in 1947, on October, November the 29th, the United Nations decided to partition one strip of land that was under British Mandate for two states for two people. 48% going to the Palestinian people, 48% going to the Israeli people, an establishment of two brand new states, and then 2% going into what would become a unified international city of Jerusalem. That, on November 29, 1947, was embraced by the Israeli people and what would become established as their state and rejected by the Palestinian people and all of the other countries in the Middle East. May 14, 1948, Israel declares a statehood and five other neighboring countries attack Israel on that day. Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, all attack. And after a years-long war, the War of Independence comes to an end and new borders are drawn. And what was supposed to be part of a Palestinian land that was rejected at the United Nations becomes part of Jordan. And Gaza Strip, which was supposed to be part of a Palestinian land, becomes part of Egypt. And part of the area in the Golan that could have been part of a Palestinian land goes to Syria. And in 1967, another war ensues and Israel captures those pieces of land. And since that time, the Palestinians have demanded that they have that land back, that it was taken from them, and indeed it was conquered from Jordan, Egypt, and Syria. And any peace treaty that's been discussed, like the return of the Sinai, or the return of the Jordan Valley, happens with those countries because they were the last ones to have autonomous rule over them. I share all this with you because the Palestinians say that they are now refugees important word, refugees. And when we think of the word refugee, we think in our mind what is depicted in picture A. Does everyone see that refugee camp in picture A? Anyone know where in Israel that picture is from? Is it from Nablus, which we call Shechem? Is it from Hebron, the city that was Abraham's, which we gave birth to Isaac and Ishmael? Is this place in Tulkarim or in Janin? Where is this from? What does this refugee city look like? Anyone with a guess or an idea? I can't hear you. A Yemenite one, no, good guess. It's a bit of a trick question because this refugee camp is not a refugee camp in Israel. It's actually a refugee camp on the border of Jordan and Syria where many Syrian refugees are running for their life and living in what is indeed a refugee camp of where they have no more home, homeland. But if you go to B and C, you will see areas of land where people who live in these homes and in this hotel and apartment buildings to it are living and claiming the status of refugee because B is a hotel in Ramallah, the head of the Palestinian Authority, and C is a home and other homes next to it in Ramallah. Ramallah, the home of the Palestinian Authority, a place where people who live in these homes claim to be refugees. Now, I ask you, between quest, picture A and picture B and C, which one do you think looks most like a refugee camp? The one that's not even in Israel. And would any of you ever think of B and C being in a refugee camp? Arthur Sinensky's here, and you will find few people in this community or in this world who advocate more for Israel than Arthur. A handful of years ago, Arthur and Debbie, his wife, went with me on a group trip to Israel, and we went to a army base in Shechem, in Nablus. And we went up to the head of the outpost. Do you remember this, Arthur, when we were up there? With this elite fighting unit that was there, and we looked down on the city. 
and we saw this gorgeous city with incredible shopping malls and we could actually see through their binoculars Mercedes-Benz dealerships and BMW dealerships and falafel stands and ice cream parlors and people working and going on their way. And we said, what is this town? I don't know this Jewish town. What is this town? He says, it's not a Jewish town. This is the town of Nablus. This is almost all Palestinian town. We said, oh, is it, is it a Christian town? They said, no, this is a devout Muslim town. And then the head of the command said, this is a refugee camp. And I started to laugh inside. I said, no, really, what is it called? He said, this is called a refugee camp. You see, these people who don't have their own homeland, even though they're here, they're in their status of refugee. And when their status is refugee, even though they live in beautiful homes with all the amenities one can think of, with shopping malls and car dealerships and everything else that's happening to them, they are statused as refugees. And what our mind does in using this semantic and this terminology is we go to the mind of refugee thinking of picture A. We don't think of B or C whatsoever, when indeed that is the reality. It's not different than people who live here, who live in Tenafly or Teaneck or Inglewood, who survived the Shoah, and for all intents and purposes can argue that they are refugees here because their home and Germany or in Poland was taken from them and they were forced out. And therefore, since it can't be returned to them, they are in refugee status. These are people in their 70s and 80s with an incredible ledger if they show to their accountant, multiplying in seven, eight, nine digits for some of them because they found incredible success in this country. They have multiple homes and they drive nice cars. But should we classify them as refugees because they can't go back to their home in Poland or Germany after the war? Is that the right word in which we use to describe the people who have yet to have a state? And let's flip it again. Turn the page over. This decision of sanctions for the United Nations was about settlement building. Now, I'm gonna talk about settlement building and peace in a minute. But when you say the word settlement, what happens is you and I normally think of something like we see in our mind's eye that's depicted in picture D. A small outpost on a hill with a few trailers in a, uh, a caravan and maybe a generator keeping them afloat, five or six families who are starting an outpost to build and conquer land. That's what we think of when we say settlements. But the truth is, there are about as many of these happening in the West Bank as fingers I have on this hand. What are they really talking about? Three major cities. Cities, they are called Ariel, Malea, Dumim, and Ephrat. These are located literally on the border of the Green Line with Israel. In each of these cities, there's anywhere between 70 and 110,000 people living. And they live in homes that look like, picture E, E. Now does E look to you in that little city, and that is a city in which you see, with what is the equivalent of their JCC in the front and a community pool and playgrounds and parks and all the apartments behind it. Does that look to you like a settlement when you say the word settlement in your mind's eye? Or does that look to you like a thriving city with schools and healthcare and fire departments and police and infrastructure? In every single conversation of peace that has occurred, not a one has included the return of Ariel Malea de Mimrefrat, not one. And that's where the phrase land swaps came into application because there's no way we're going to take 270,000 Jewish people and evacuate them from their homes and leave them there. We might do that with 10 to 15,000 people who are in these small outposts in small other cities, 
but the other ones would be changed for what's called mutually agreed upon land swaps, so that the percentage of land that's taken up by these cities will be given, and new percentage of unpopulated land to the Palestinian Authority. So when you think of settlement and settlement growth, what you're talking about in this picture of picture E is someone who has a fourth baby and they decide to make another annex in their apartment so they can have another bedroom or a den. And that falls into the category of settlement growth. Someone who says here in this little plot of land that's a park, maybe here we should build another recreation center so we can teach music and culture and dance and skating to all the people who are here. And the government of the United States says no, that represents settlement growth. When indeed this is equivalent of undisputed territory at this point. This is not settlement growth. And to take it a step further, when Benjamin Netanyahu went on the line with his own coalition and said that he would freeze 10 months, 10 months of settlement growth, it included that if you lived in an apartment and your shower was leaking, and you lived in Gilo, which is one of these cities in the outskirts of Jerusalem in undisputed returnable territory. And what I mean by that is it will not be returned under any agreed upon uh, mandate. Your apartment would leak for 10 months. You were not allowed to call a repairman and fix that because it was referred to as settlement growth. If your balcony had a piece of the ledge that was broken off, you couldn't fix it because that was called settlement growth. It was a total freeze for 10 months. And let's talk about that freeze for a minute as we pivot to the peace process. During that 10 months, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, was silent, as silent as Marcel Marceau. Didn't come forward once to the Israelis, the Americans, and said, now through this action I have seen some willingness to move forward. In fact, that entire 10 months went forward and still they were not willing to come to the table and have a conversation and for the administration of the United States to paint the situation of peace as responsible on the settlement growth is silly. It's silly. And as Alan Dershowitz said, it's like blaming obesity in America solely on the shoulders of McDonald's. None of it falls on our choices whatsoever. And that's wrong. Because in 1947, the Palestinians were offered a state and they rejected it. In 1948, when there was a ceasefire, they never requested runs from Jordan or from Egypt or from Syria for land to be their own state. In fact, they were persecuted heavily under the Jordanian rule. In 1967, we offered them a return of the lands in exchange for recognition of the state of Israel and future peace. And at that point, they said, no return of land, no recognition of the state of Israel, and no peace. In 1967, in 1992 and 93, it was Yitzhak Rabin who went to Oslo and said, let's make peace with these people, finally. And in that time of what was a civil war growing in Israel, it was the Palestinians that created another growth of Intifada. In 2000, at the end of the presidency of Bill Clinton, he invited Yasser Arafat and Ehud Barak to Camp David. There, Ehud Barak offered 96% of what is the West Bank, 96% of what they're asking for. How many of you have ever been in a negotiation or a deal? Someone offers you 96% of what you're asking for, you run, you grab it, you embrace it, especially if what you're after for is autonomy and statehood and a flag and a place to call your own. And Arafat walked away from it and said no, 
Bill Clinton wagged his finger in the face of the Palestinians and said, they are to blame for the lack of peace at this moment. And what did Arafat bring back in return? A wave of terror to the likes of which the country and the world had never seen before, where people were afraid to walk outside of their apartment because you couldn't get on a bus, you couldn't go to a grocery store, you couldn't get a Coke without fear of your life. In 2006, Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush offered with Ehud Olmert a proposal to Mahmoud Abbas with almost the same deal as Barack offered, even better in some ways. And it was rejected again. And Condoleezza Rice wrote immediately in her book that the blame lied fully and responsibly on the Palestinians, who she was convinced after that moment sought no statehood. Because had they sought statehood, they would have embraced the deal. And I contend to this administration, to this president, to anyone who stands back and says from a very comfortable distance what the obstacle to peace is, it is not the issue of borders, it is not the issue of refugees, it's not the issue of what to do with Jerusalem. Those are the three most talked about pieces of what leads to peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. In my opinion, that is easily solvable. It's the fourth clause that's never spoken about. The fourth clause, which is the most important clause of every single negotiation with the Palestinians has been cessation to all future claims. By that it means that whatever deal is agreed upon, 94% of the West Bank, 98% mutually agreed upon land swaps, all of Gaza, some of Gaza, tunnels connecting, their own military, demilitarized, doesn't matter. Jerusalem becoming an international city, a city that's divided, whatever it is, that signing on the dotted line with that agreement brings a cessation to all future claims. It means the Palestinians cannot say six months, six years, or 60 years later, oh yeah, Haifa is still ours. We want Tel Aviv, it's not been settled, this was just a placeholder. Just like the Israelis at that point could not say, this part of Hebron is ours, or this part of this village is ours. It is a cessation to all future claims. It means the conflict is finally over. And in my estimation, that is the greatest obstacle for the Palestinians to sign on the line. Because there isn't an Israeli I know who doesn't want peace with their neighbors. And there's barely an Israeli I know who believes that it's achievable in their lifetime. Think about that statistic. Over 87% of Israelis in the state of Israel want peace with its neighbors. And 77% of them believe it won't be achievable in their lifetime. Think about that. Now is that because someone's building an annex to their apartment where 110,000 people already live? And in every negotiation from 67 to 92 to 2000 to 2006, those areas were never in discussion or dispute. That everyone and the leadership of the Palestinian Authority from Hanan Ashrari to Mahmoud Abbas to Saeed Barakat understands that Malaya, Dermim, Ariel, and Efrat are gonna be given back to Israel as mutually agreed upon land swaps and not considered part of occupied land. So why in the world would the United Nations choose or the American government choose, or the French government choose, or the Dutch government choose, or the New Zealand government choose to call this area a settlement, to call it something we see in D, like squatters claiming land, when really it's a picture in E. These semantics matter. These differences matter. And for all of us who read a headline without reading the article, 
For all of us that read an article without reading another article to get greater understanding, you're doing an injustice to yourself. Because if you can't stand at the water cooler and talk to your colleague, your cousin, your neighbor about why this is wrong, even though you feel it in your heart, then you're not armed properly and you're not doing enough to make yourself knowledgeable to have this conversation. And that is our first line of defense. The second line of defense is to draw ire with every single one of these countries that seems to put Israel in their crosshairs. Now tell me if this makes any sense to you. Think about how much money the city of New York, the United States of America spends to keep the United Nations open in New York City. And in doing so, 28 different pieces of legislation were passed at the United Nations, or presented, I should rephrase that, were presented against Israel this year. 28 about issues with settlements and behaviors and mistreatment, all that can be brought with sanctions against Israel to bring them to The Hague, to international courts, and to vilify them. Anyone have any idea how many countries, how many other sanctions were brought in all of the year against every other country combined? Four. That includes Iran, which is pursuing nuclear weaponry. That includes Syria, which has killed half a million people of their own. That includes North Korea. Four. You don't see something wrong or imbalanced there? You don't see something that reminds us of 1492 or pogroms in Russia in the turn of the century? Or maybe 1935 or 36 or 37 all over again? Not suggesting another impending Holocaust, I'm just suggesting that the level of inequity, discrimination, against Israel is unprecedented. And it's our job to speak out against it. I share all of this with you on Shabbat and what is, I know, a very long-winded remark because understanding the state of Israel and our relationship with the state of Israel is as complicated as our relationship with our brothers and our sisters and our parents. Moments in which we long for it and get frustrated by it of how we long to be in Israel and get frustrated at bureaucracy going through customs at some person who gives us a hard time and asking silly questions, but still realizing at that time that it's part of your DNA and the fibers of who you are, and realizing that like every relationship that counts, they are complex, they are detailed, and we cannot say in a single word or a single tweet how it is that we will connect with them. We cannot say after eight years of relationship what it is that our president was for the state of Israel, good or bad, right or wrong. We can say that about every single one of the presidents from the foundation of the state, from Truman to Nixon to Reagan to both Bushes and Clinton and on. All of them have positives and negatives. And the same can be said about the current leader of the state of Israel. But our job is to look at these in a way where we start to adjust and calibrate those changes so we can make a difference. For anyone who thinks that the obstacle to peace is building another bedroom and what is this city in the picture in which you see in E, I think is grossly misguided. And for any administration or United Nations organization to say this is the cause of the lack of peace is silly. To equate the building of a bedroom to suicide bombers and to attacks on army officials, and to kidnappings 
clearly lives in a different moral universe than you and I live in. And when people live in those different moral universes, it's our job and our role to raise our hands and to say where they're wrong and where we disagree. If we are, as a people, going to unify like the brothers did in the story of Jacob and Joseph, we must unify over common values. As I said a few weeks ago, and I still worry from day by day, I worry about the impending civil war in the Jewish world, and perhaps even in the secular world in America just the same. What we saw the wake of November, maybe even all the months leading through that I was blind to and maybe others were too, is that we indeed are the divided states of America. We are no longer united. What unites us, sadly, is a sense of tragedy. When 9-11 happens, or Pearl Harbor happens, or an attack in Florida at an airport happens, we are united in grief and united in our morality. But we can't afford for that to happen for us as a Jewish people. We've suffered way too much and for way too long for us to unify after another tragedy. It has to be before. So I implore all of you to dig deep. Find the patience in your heart to see and hear a point of view of something you might disagree with. To spend the time getting different colors in the bucket of paint of which you dip your brush into instead of just the black and white, which I know is simpler and easier and fits neatly into 140 characters. But realize that the world we live in is so much more complex than that, so much more challenging than that, so much more nuanced and detailed than that. And that ultimately, it's through those different colors that we see the beauty of the code of Joseph and the code of our people and our shared future.